What a joy to be with you today. If you have your Bibles, I want to encourage you to open them to 1 Timothy chapter 6. So if you had your place in 1 Timothy, you can just turn to the right a few pages there. 1 Timothy chapter 6. And uh, every time I come here, it is just a blessing, even when I come here just to do a little study or for some meetings, uh, to see the grace of God and His favor upon this institution is just absolutely overwhelming. Uh, I came to Kansas City in 2012, which I think is roughly the same time Dr. Allen came, and um, to see what God has done uh, over these past 10 years um, is nothing short of the grace of God. Um, but Dr. Allen, I'm so thankful for you and your leadership of this institution and what a joy it is to be a part of it in any way whatsoever. And it's an honor to be able to share God's word with you today. Dr. Allen was mentioning the, the Chiefs and what a joy it is this season to be Chiefs fan. Well, my family, so my wife graduated from the University of Alabama. So my boys, uh, this is a good year so far. So Wyatt, or my youngest, Walker, actually told me this week, Alabama basketball is actually ranked number nine. Can you believe that? And Walker said, Dad, if we get the football national championship and the Chiefs win the Super Bowl, and basketball, that's the trifecta right there. So we'll see. It's a pretty good time in our family to be a sports fan. But 1 Timothy, 1 Timothy, uh, you guys know 1 Timothy 1-2 Titus, these are pastoral epistles. It's Paul writing to Timothy and Titus to instruct them on what the church should look like, the, the leadership of the church, what are the qualifications for leaders, what's the mission of the church. And so that's really the heart of all of these letters, Paul writing to Timothy and to Titus. What's interesting, though, when you study 1 Timothy is you come to chapter 6, and you have this, this book that's entirely about the mission of the church and the qualifications of leaders and what the church should be built upon, and you get to a chapter in chapter 6 that's almost entirely devoted to the issue of wealth and money and possessions. And, and the question that, that I ask, you may ask, is in a book about its church and its missions, why would he devote an entire chapter to the issue of money and materialism? And this is just my supposition, this is my belief, that Paul knew that nothing would sap a church or its leadership or a Christian of their gospel effectiveness quite like a materialistic spirit. That nothing will zap a church or a Christian of their gospel effectiveness quite like a materialist, materialistic spirit. I firmly believe that Satan has it in his arsenal of tricks that if he can just get us focused upon stuff and the money and the, the bottom line of our bank account and off of the souls and of men and women, then he will have succeeded in so many ways. And I don't know about you, the reason I'm going here is because for me, as I begin each year, I love to go, there's chapters I love to just go back to. And this is a chapter that, that I like to dwell upon as I begin the year because I have found that Satan is pretty effective. You know, as, as conservative Baptists, we, we preach a lot against the health and wealth gospel. 
But boy, if we're not careful, it can creep into our hearts too. And I have found that what's easy is studying this. And quite honestly, memorizing this chapter is really easy. The difficulty comes in actually living it. But that's what we're called to do. So let me just read these verses. We're going to begin in verse 3, and then we'll pray, and we'll work our way through it pretty quickly. Look with me in verse 3 of chapter 6. If anyone advocates a different doctrine and does not agree with sound words, those of our Lord Jesus Christ, and with the doctrine conforming to godliness, he is conceited and understands nothing. But he has a morbid interest in controversial questions and disputes about words out of which arise envy, strife, abusive language, evil suspicions, and a constant friction between men of a depraved mind and deprived of the truth who suppose that godliness is a means of gain. But godliness actually is a means of great gain when it's accompanied by contentment. For we brought nothing into this world, we can't take anything out of it either. If we have food and covering, with this we shall be content. But those who want to get rich fall into a temptation and a snare and many foolish and harmful desires which plunge men into ruin and to destruction. For the love of money is a root of all sorts of evil, and some by longing for it have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. But flee from these things, you man of God, and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, perseverance, and gentleness. Fight the good fight of faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called, and you made the good confession the presence of many witnesses. I charge you in the presence of God who gives life to all things and of Christ Jesus who testified the good confession before Pontius Pilate that you keep the commandment without stain or reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which he will bring about at the proper time, he who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone possesses immortality and dwells in unapproachable light, whom no man has seen or can see, to him be honor and dominion. Amen. Father, we ask that you would bless the study of your word today. Let it take roots into our heart and bear the fruit of righteousness and holiness. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So Paul, in in verses 3 through 5, he prefaces kind of this content on possessions and and money by addressing these false teachers. And you know, uh, he addresses, there's not hardly a chapter where he doesn't address the issue uh, of false teachers. These are the individuals who basically have gotten away from the Word of God. They disagree with sound doctrine. They, They disagree with the words of Christ. They disagree with the Bible. And a lot of the heart of these pastoral epistles, and specifically 1 Timothy and 2 Timothy, is that you, Timothy, you stick with the word. You be a person of the Bible. And we talk often at Lenexa Baptist Church that, uh, that when it comes to the content of our Sunday school teaching and our, and our, and our teaching in, in Scripture from the pulpit, uh, you can talk a lot about things, a lot of things out there in the world. You want to talk politics or, or psychology 
or aliens or whatever. You know, you can do that out in the world, but in here in the church, we're going to stick to the Bible. We're going to be a people of the book. So he's encouraging Timothy, you stay uh, with the Bible. And it's interesting here uh, that that he says they're conceited and they understand nothing because a lot of times the accusation that's brought against us as the church, when we stick to the truthfulness of God's word and the exclusivity of Christ, what's often the accusation? That we're arrogant or that we're conceited and they may not say it that way, but they're thinking it, their idea is, who are you to tell me what to believe or how to act or live? Uh, or the other accusation is you guys are just a bunch of simpletons and you need to move away from these archaic ideas of the Bible. And don't you love Paul? He says, no, listen, we're not the ones who are conceited and don't understand anything. No, you're conceited and you don't understand anything. Because really the height of arrogance and conceitedness is to think that you know more than God. I love Paul. He doesn't pull any punches. But he's telling Timothy, you stick to the word. And really at the heart of these false teachers, though, he identifies the root issue, which is greed. Because he says they assume that godliness is a means of gain. In other words, with these false teachers, at the heart of it is not a desire for the souls of men and women. It's not even about the gospel. It's about lining their own pockets with money. Now, surely nobody would fall into that trap today that it wouldn't become or we wouldn't be in danger of getting to the place where it just simply becomes about our brand and our platform and how much money we can put in our pockets instead of the souls of men and women and the gospel. But he says these guys are getting off track and the root of this is, is a desire to take godliness and let Jesus work their side of the street. And it really begs the question though, then, then how should we view possessions? Because you got to remember, these people, the Old Testament, there was an idea that, although I, I beg the different, I, we're studying Jacob and Esau. In Genesis 36, you see that Esau is going to prosper greatly and Jacob's not going to prosper that much. But there was this idea in the Old Testament that if you had riches and wealth, it was a sign of God's favor. And the question then becomes, how should we? How should we view possessions? And so Paul continues on and he's going to address first kind of the concept of contentment. So look in verse six, he says, but godliness actually is a means of great gain when accompanied by contentment. He says they got it half right because godliness really is a means of gain, not just gain, but it's great gain, but only when it's combined with contentment. And then we got to ask ourselves, what kind of contentment are we talking about here? Because in our day, contentment's become somewhat of a buzzword. A lot of people try and simple lie, you know, they're, they're living in storage containers or whatever, these little homes and, and living off grid. That's become a big deal and trying to simplify their life as a means of gaining contentment. So we got to ask what kind of contentment we're talking about here. Well, when Paul speaks a, about contentment, he's talking about the contentment that we find in Christ. And biblical contentment is not about more stuff or less stuff. It's about Christ. It's about having Christ. You know, my, my favorite book of the Bible is Philippians. And, and Paul in Philippians talks all about the gain of Christ. He talks about in chapter one, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. You see, you want to talk about gain. I got great gain in Christ. He moves on in chapter three. I, I've suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish in order that I might gain Christ. And you get to the end of the book, and he says, not that I speak from one, for I've learned to be content 
In whatever circumstances I am, I know how to get along with humble means. I also know how to live in prosperity. In any and every circumstance, I've learned the secret of being filled and going hungry, both in having abundance and suffering need. I can do all things through Christ. Paul's saying it doesn't matter if I got much stuff or no stuff. As long as I have Christ, I've got great gain. See, money can make you wealthy, but it cannot make you content. Only Christ can make you content. But Paul, as he moves on here, he's very practical. Because we got to understand what possessions mean. So look in verse 7. He says, for we have brought nothing into the world, so we can't take anything out of it either. He says here, if we're going to have a right understanding of possessions, we've got to think of our entrance and our exit. You want to have a right understanding of possessions, think about your birth and think about your death. I was blessed to be in the room when both my sons were born. And when they were born, they didn't bring anything with them. And no backpack, no goodies. And they were content. Now, they were crying, but they were content in the provision of their mother. They didn't bring anything in. So you got to think about your entrance, but not only your entrance, but your exit. Think about the place of your death. Yeah, I've done funerals for men and women who were incredibly wealthy. And I've done funerals for individuals who had nothing. And when you come to the moment of a funeral, you, it's, I love, in fact, it's a good, I mean, I think we're, we're encouraged in Scripture to spend some time in the house of mourning to be reminded of what's really valuable in life. Because when you come to that moment, you get a clear understanding that none of that stuff really matters. That you can't take any of it with you. That you check it at the door. And so Paul says, you got to have a right understanding of this. You know, life has, has been described as a chess game. There's kings and queens and knights and bishops and pawns. But at the end of the game, you scrape them all off the board and they go into the same box. And so Paul says, listen, you got to think about your entrance and your exit. And, and, and it all sounds well and good, doesn't it? You know, that possessions don't mean anything. But at the end of the day, we still got to pay the bills, right? And so Paul even gets more practical. What should be the level of our expectation? What should we expect in this world? Well, verse 8, he says, if we have food and covering, with these we shall be content. What's our level of expectation? He says, here's your level of expectation. Food and covering. Then he's talking about clothing and a roof over your head. That's it. Food, clothing, roof over your head. Yeah, I look around this room. All of you are clothed. I don't think we let naked people into chapel. You're doing all right there. Comes to food. Most of us in this room are prospering in the area of food. Some prospering a little more than others. But we're doing all right. And that's our basic level of expectation. So from a, from a spiritual perspective, it's just Christ and Christ alone. From a physical perspective, Paul says really all that you can expect is food and covering. But you know, I think our lack, our lack of contentment is a direct result of buying into the lie that all this other stuff is a necessity. You know, in 2017, so my data here is old, but in 2017, $205 billion were spent on advertising. $205 billion spent on 
instructing you on the fact that your life will not be good unless you have this or that. And it's becoming even more dangerous because how many of you, this is the craziest thing, me and my wife can take a walk and discuss a place we want to go or something we're thinking about buying. And we get home and you Google something and 10 ads come up for what we just talked about in private. If that's not scary, I don't know what is. But our world is constantly today bombarding us with the things that, that, that really are excessive luxuries, but they're telling us are a necessity. I mean, I, I think often previous generations, I, think, I just think of my two grandfathers, that half of what I consider, boy, I really got to have that, they would look at me today and say, that is an excessive luxury. And when excessive luxuries begin to be necessities in our life, I think we've ruined any hopes of really having contentment in this world. The key to contentment is not more stuff, it's, it's having more Christ. And then he gives a caution. So he's talked about the concept, but then the caution in verses 9 and 10. He says, but those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a snare and many foolish and harmful desires which plunge men into ruin and destruction. He says, if you set your heart, if your life's ambition is to get rich, you are walking next to an abyss. If your primary goal is to get rich, if that's what drives you, is if, if what occupies your, your mind at night when you lie in bed is the accumulation of stuff, you are walking next to an abyss because what, what will happen is you, if, if that's your goal, you're going to be tempted to cut corners. If that's your goal, you're going to be tempted to do things you should never do. You're going to be tempted to become friends with people you should never be friends with. And Paul says you're in danger of plunging your life into ruin and destruction. He says, for the love of money, and verse 10 is the root of all sorts of evil, and some by longing for it have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. And let's be clear here, money is not the problem. Wealth is not sinful. Money is not sinful. I know a lot of wealthy people in my life, and they're content, and they're a blessing to be around. And the more I think about those individuals, most of them, I would say, they didn't start out with the goal of getting rich in the first place. They were just being faithful, and God blessed them. And I think oftentimes God blesses people because he knows they'll become a conduit of blessing. And there's a lot of wealthy people who are underpinning a lot of ministry and missions around the world. Wealth is not the problem. Wealth is not sinful, but the love of money is always sinful. And I don't know about you, but I struggle with this in my life of where do you draw the line? I, I just this week had this conversation with my son in the truck. And I said, I'm going to put you in my shoes as I, me and your mom think through decisions because he's getting old enough that he needs to think through these things. But I was sitting with him and just talking about at what point do we draw the line of saying this is a sinful desire for more stuff and not just me wanting to meet a need in my life. And I don't know about you, but some of the questions that I constantly ask myself is this, if my life is, if I'm just infatuated with how much money I have in the bank, or if I'm constantly worried about what might happen if it goes away, or, or if you're in debt to your eyeballs, you, you've leveraged your life to, to create the illusion that somehow you've become successful. I think if any of those things, if you're... The other danger for me is if you're starting to compare yourself to other people. 
Boy, you really want to get in trouble in the area of contentment. Always worry about what the guy next to you has. If those things start to become an issue, you're in a dangerous spot because he says some by longing for it have wandered from the faith. They pierced themselves with many griefs. They've pierced themselves. It's the picture of piercing through an animal. It's a picture of a pig on a spit being roasted. That's the picture. They've roasted their lives. And we've got plenty of examples in Scripture. We don't have time to go through them today, but you think of Achan, Joshua 7. You remember Achan holds some back. They were told, don't take certain things because we're not in it for the money. He holds some back thinking nobody knows. Guess who knew? God knew. Um, I think of Gehazi, Elijah's servant. You remember Naaman comes to be healed by Elijah, and Elijah heals him, and Naaman's really grateful and says, I want to he's a rich man. I want to give you a whole bunch of stuff. And what does Elijah say? We're not, we're not in it for the money. You keep your stuff. God doesn't need your money. And Gehazi's thinking, well, Elijah may not want it, but I sure would like to have some. And he runs on down the road, and he gets some, and he goes back. And Elijah says, where have you been? And Gehazi says, uh, nowhere. And Elijah says, I know where you've been. And the leprosy was on Naaman. It's not going to be on you. It doesn't end well. I mean, he gets to the New Testament. Judas takes his eye off God and starts putting it on the gold. I mean, you think of Ananias and Sapphira who sold a piece of land and they gave some to the church. And the issue wasn't how much they gave. <laughs> how much they gave, that's an issue between you and God. That's not the issue. The issue was they lied about how much they gave to make themselves look better and more generous than they actually were. Boy, it never ends well. And I think that <laughs> the danger is we think we've checked this box and taken the test and it's no longer an issue. And I think it's a battle we struggle with for all of our lives. I, just a personal example in my life, there's a guy that I went to college with who was incredibly gifted and was an encouragement to me when I was in college, went to Texas, became a part of a, was a pastor at a very large church in Texas. And uh, he ended up, I know, spending time in jail because he stole $800,000 from his church over a period of about six years. And I wonder, where in the world did this guy get off track? Well, listen, you take one little inch and you start moving in that direction, it's dangerous. That's what Paul is saying here. And if any of you don't think this is an issue, you better take heed lest you fall. Well, then he gives his commands as we conclude, verses 11 through 16, but flee from these things, you man of God, and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, perseverance, and gentleness. <laughs> I love this. He, he, when he starts talking to Timothy, he says, you man of God. And this is so important because our identity drives our activity. Who we are drives the decisions that we make. It determines what we do. If your identity this morning is wrapped up in your job, in your clothes, in your position, in your home, you're gonna have a completely different value system. You're gonna make different decisions because your decisions are determined by your identity. But if you are a person who is trusted in Christ, you are a man or woman of God. And it's incredible when you think about who Paul is talking to here. Paul is talking about Timothy. And Timothy is three things, very clearly. Timothy is young, he's timid, and he's frail. You remember, Timothy's the guy that, that Paul said, hey, Timothy, go ahead and take a little wine for the stomach. We know you got them stomach problems and you struggle. Go ahead and take a little wine. And Paul knows this guy is young frail and timid. But when he speaks to him, does he start out by saying, Timothy, I know you struggle. No, he says, Timothy, you're a man of God. 
And I think you can almost picture Timothy just, yeah, that's right, man. I'm a man man of God. He's saying, Timothy, you got a higher calling. You have a higher identity than the junk of this world. Some of you may need to hear that even this morning. God knows your weaknesses. But you're a man of God. You're a woman of God. You have a higher calling than the junk of this world. But he says to him, you flee, you run, you run from, run from a, a wrong view of money and stuff. Run from a materialistic spirit and follow. It's the idea of chasing down and pursuing, running after. You know, when we come to faith in Christ, our appetite changes. But Christian growth and maturity don't just happen. You don't float into holiness. You don't coast into godliness. And salvation is something that we receive by grace through faith. But as you were born spiritually, you begin to grow. You've got to pursue Christ. Uh, One of my professors at at Southwestern was Dr. J.W. McGorman. And he kind of had this this accent, but I still, it just rings in my head all the time. And he would tell us, any old dead fish can float downstream, but it takes a heap bit of wiggle in your tail to swim against the current. And that's us. We're men and women who have a heap bit of wiggle in our tail because we're swimming against the current. We're pursuing. And he says, if you're going to pursue something, how about pursuing righteousness? How about pursuing godliness, that I'm honoring God in my thoughts, in my speech, in my action? You want to pursue something, pursue faith. Who are your heroes? Are your heroes on ESPN or the Forbes list or, or your heroes in the Hall of Faith in Hebrews chapter 11? Pursue a greater trust in God. It was Spurgeon who said, a little faith will take a person to heaven so long as it is in Christ, but great faith will bring heaven to your soul. Pursue that. Pursue love. 1 Corinthians 13, everything minus love equals nothing. (laughs) If you're going to be in ministry, you're going to be called to love some very difficult people. You want to pursue something, pursue loving those people. And perseverance, it's staying power and gentleness, probably the most powerful of all the graces, the, the ability to be gentle with people who are not easy to be gentle with. Pursue those things. And we never attain them fully here on this earth, but pursue them, fight for them. In fact, that's what he says in verse 12. Fight, fight the good fight of faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you are called. And you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. We know this, the Christian life is a fight, it's a battle. The lamb has won the war, but the battle isn't over. And the difference between a defeated life and a victorious life is the willingness to fight. You cannot float, you gotta fight. I've seen this time and time again. Great Christians are not great because they're better. They're not great because they're smarter. Great Christians are not great because they've got more of the Holy Spirit. They're not great because they have better gifts. They're great because they get up early and they fight their flesh in the word of God and in prayer. You gotta struggle. If you're okay with being an average Christian, if you're okay with having an average life, an average marriage, that's fine. You just float, you sleep in. Leave your Bible on the shelf, you'll probably do okay and maybe you'll make it to heaven. As I was saying, I couldn't help but think of... uh, I, I love the movie Braveheart, and um, there's a quote there. It's one of the, the best ones, but you'll remember William Wallace is encouraging uh, the army to fight, and they would normally go, and they negotiate, and then they'd run. 
And he's saying fight. And they say, well, no, nah, we're not going to fight. We're going to run and we'll live. You remember what he says? Run and you'll live for a little while. But many years from now, dying on your bed, would you give every day from this day to that to go back and to tell your enemy, you can take my life, but you'll never take my freedom. And I know a lot of men who would give a lot of days and a lot of stuff to be able to go back and to tell the enemy, you can have my stuff, but you can't take my spiritual legacy. Fight, and then finally finish. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called. Many we run to the tape. He says, until the appearing of the Lord Jesus Christ, we finish strong. We finish with the idea that we know we will stand before God one day. And uh, one of my mentors used to pound this into my head, that one day you will stand before God. And in that moment, it won't really matter how many people came to hear you preach. What will matter is, did you, how well did you love your wife and your children? And how many people love Jesus more as a result of having known you? We're going to give an account. We'll not be judged on the basis of our sin. Our sin is covered through the shed blood of Jesus Christ. But we'll give an account of our works. And I don't want to get to that moment and realize that all that I did was just a bunch of wood, hay, and straw. You know, how you finish is an indicator of whether or not you've really fought. You, you see it in these football games. The teams, they may have a good first quarter or second quarter, but where it really matters is the fourth quarter. You see it in basketball. You can determine whether or not they've really prepared and fought by how they do at the end of the game, not the beginning. We are a people who finish strong. We finish well. Um, my grandfather was a marathoner. He ran 50 marathons. And um, he loved to run, and I, I ran cross-country when I was in high school. And he would come to most of my cross-country meets. And uh, he didn't care how I started. I, I almost always would start at the back of the pack because it was always demoralizing to me to have people pass me. <laughs> I always wanted to pass other people. So I always just started at the back. But he didn't care how I started. He just cared how I finished. And when I talk about finish, how I finished, I'm not talking about whether I finished first or second or 15th. What he wanted to see is that when I came within an eye shot of the finish line, did I lay it all on the line? He expected me, no matter how tired I was. That's what I loved about running. It was not me competing against anybody else as much as it was competing against my mind to push my body further than I thought I could go. But in that moment, seeing the finish line, there was ability to kick it into another gear and lay it all on the line. And I, I, he would run alongside of me, and he would shout to me. He'd, I could still hear him in my ear. He would yell to me, finish. Finish, Chad, Finish. And I'm telling you, there are so many times in my life when I'm being honest with you, I struggle to. I struggle with getting sucked into a materialistic mindset. You know what I hear in my ear? 
my grandfather shouting, finish. Keep fighting, you finish. And reaching the finish line and seeing my Savior, the the opportunity to hear Jesus say to me, which we all long to hear, well done, the pleasure of my Savior saying well done to me is worth more to me than any momentary pleasure of this world. Some of you need to hear that today because you're being sucked in and you're in danger of making some dumb decisions. Whatever it is, it's not worth it. It's not worth losing that. What do you do? Stay in the Word. Stay in the Word. And I'm not talking about getting up for 15 minutes and checking a box so you can go on your way. I'm talking about opening God's Word and pleading with God that you got to speak to me today or I'm a dead man. And Deuteronomy says this, this word, it, this book is no idle word to you. It is your very life. You got to get up in the morning and you got to go to God. Drag your sorry self out of bed. And get in God's word and plead with him to speak to you and fill you, to protect you. You know what one of my prayers is? Every day, God protect me from myself. I am a sheep. And I will wander off a cliff apart from your divine direction. Be accountable to somebody. I, uh, I have men in my life that know me. You need to have somebody in your life who isn't afraid of you. You know what I mean? Somebody who's not afraid, regardless of who you are, to come to you, and if you get out of line to say, you better watch yourself. Go to church. And I know I'm speaking to seminary students, but you need to hear it too. Go to church. And I realize this COVID stuff, and there are some people, don't mishear me, there's some people that probably do need to, to be isolated this time. But listen, the vast majority of people need to go to church. Not, not Listen, you need the church, but listen to me as a pastor, the church needs you. Go to church. Flee, follow, fight, and finish. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you for the encouragement we receive from your word. God, you knew that we would struggle with these things, so you recorded these words under the inspiration of the Spirit given to Paul to Timothy to instruct us today. And God, I pray for every individual, either whether they're here in person or online joining us somewhere. God, I pray that we would commit ourselves as men and women of God, to a higher calling and a higher pursuit in Christ Jesus. I pray that by your Spirit and by your Word, you would protect us and help us to flee, flee from the pursuit of material things and to pursue and to follow you. Give us the strength to fight today. On our own, we're not able to defeat Satan. But in you, All things become possible, and greater is he that is in us than he that is in the world. And God, help us to finish. God, do whatever it takes. Death before dishonor, may that be our heart. 
do whatever it takes, but keep us in the center of your will. Don't let us do anything that would bring shame upon Jesus, our Savior, the cross, or the church, that we might be the light of the world and demonstrate the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness and into his marvelous light. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.